Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and other previous shows as a podcast or on the website evidencebasederrata.com. So before we get started tonight, um, in recognition that Monday is Indigenous Peoples Day, um, I do want to once again remind us that we are if you are uh, local, I should say, um, on Pakumtuk land and also Nipmuc land. And so uh, the, Patum- the Patumtuk and Nipmuc uh, are the ancestral people of this land. Um, and so I think it's very important to acknowledge that there were people here before uh, Europeans got here. And so I am definitely of European descent. So I am definitely, uh, someone who should be grateful, um, and really remember the fact that, um, people were here before, um, the ancestors of people like me. Um, I'm only a couple generations. Uh, <laughs> I've only been, my family's only been American for a couple of generations. So, you know, um, as far as I know, so we weren't here when any of this happened, but that does not matter. Um, it's still going on today and, um, we still treat the indigenous people of this nation, um, in ways that are abominable. And, um, I think it's really important to remember that especially on Indigenous Peoples Day, but pretty much every day. Um, And so, yeah, I just wanted to make that acknowledgement. And I apologize if I have uh, butchered the pronunciation, which I almost certainly did. Okay, so with that out of the way, tonight we're actually going to start with a story not about COVID-19, but about malaria. And so a vaccine, which is going to be called Muscirix has been developed by Glasgow Smith Klein, and it is the first to be approved by the World Health Organization for wide distribution. The vaccine will be recommended for children in sub-Saharan Africa and other high-risk regions of the world, and it will be administered in a four-dose regimen beginning at the age of five months. Now, In case you don't know, which I think you probably do if you're listening to this show, malaria is one of man's basically worst enemies. Along with tuberculosis, malaria has plagued the human race for thousands of years. In Africa, most infections are from Plasmodium falciparum, but at least five species of Plasmodium parasites can cause malaria, including Plasmodium vivax. And so while early symptoms are mild, untreated infections with P. falciparum can lead to severe organ damage and death, especially in young children. And we can say that malaria deaths have been on the decline in recent years, with increased programs around mosquito control and treatment programs. But despite these efforts, there were still 229 million estimated cases in 2019, with around 400,000 deaths. So this was second only to tuberculosis for a single infectious disease. 
Though, as you may imagine, COVID-19 has now overtaken malaria and quite possibly also TB in these last two years. So those dates were from 2019, right before COVID-19 hit. And so this is a big deal. Um, people have been trying to find cures for malaria for ages. And when quinine was first discovered, it was considered miraculous and amazing. And, you know, using quinine uh, derivatives still does work um, to an extent, but because this is a vector-borne disease, because the it is caused by parasites, those parasites evolve. And so malaria has continued to evolve, and it also evolves alongside the vector that um, infects humans and other um, animals, which is the mosquitoes. And so a big problem that is starting to, um, or something that's becoming a big problem, is that some female Anopheles mosquitoes, which are the species that transmit the disease to humans, are starting to show signs of resistance to insecticides. And so that's a big deal. If they can't be controlled with insecticides, we need something else. We need to have a vaccine. And so it's very, very helpful that this is coming out now. And so again, as the disease has basically evolved with us for a very long time, it's quite good at infecting our system and evading our defenses. And that also made creating a vaccine more difficult. And so basically people have been working on vaccines for malaria for decades at this point. It's not just that they suddenly thought, oh, well, we found a vaccine for COVID-19, so let's turn to other things. They've been looking, uh, just like people looked for a really long time for some sort of treatment, people have been working on this problem. This is a historic moment. The long-awaited malaria vaccine for children is a breakthrough for science, child health, and malaria control, said WHO Director, WHO Director General Tedros Ahanam Gabriasis, Gabriasis, sorry, in a statement announcing their endorsement of the vaccine. Using this vaccine on top of existing tools to prevent malaria could save tens of thousands of young lives each year. And so that sounds great and it's amazing and it really is, but like with most things in science, there are some caveats. So it turns out that the vaccine is not nearly as effective as, say, the COVID-19 vaccine uh, that, you know, we have at the moment, which is highly effective. Um, and so the um, efficacy of this new um, malaria vaccine is around 55%. Um, and unfortunately, that 55% is really only in the first year. And then there's a steady decline to nominal levels by the year, by four years out. So by the time it's four years out, that, um, the, um, resistance has gone away. And so that's kind of barely enough to qualify for endorsement by the WHO. Um, but because of the scope of the disease and how many people it kills, it's still expected to save huge amounts of children. Um, and so in addition to that, 
Much like with the COVID vaccine, a study showed that combining the vaccine with anti-malarial drugs can reduce the risk of severe disease and death by up to 70%, which is a much more exciting number. Um, and so that's, again, what we, we usually think about vaccines as being something that prevents you from getting the disease. But in a lot of these newer vaccines that are being developed, because it's not so easy to just, to just create a vaccine that tricks your immune system into never allowing you to be infected, a lot of these are helping your immune system so that when it becomes infected, if it becomes infected, that it will be um, minimized and so that you won't get a severe case, that you won't have a huge amount of proliferation of the um, viruses or the parasites, that it actually reduces their ability to act in your system. And so it seems a little bit odd I think that some people really will think about vaccines as, well, you get the vaccine and then you never get the thing that you were vaccinated for. But with this newer round of vaccines, we're kind of letting that go a little bit. I mean, that's still absolutely the goal. The goal is for you not to get the disease once you've been vaccinated. But if we can say the next best thing is that if you get the disease, you won't get a severe case of it, you won't die you know, that's, that's not bad. <laughs> like that's, that's pretty good too. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that we have a lot of these, well, not a lot, we have especially two examples right now of vaccines that have that kind of, um, additional, um, sort of layer to their protection. And so again, even if it's only X amount effective if you still get it, having it be able to be combined with antimalarial drugs and reduce that risk of severe death and disease is really good. Um, okay, I'm going to stop because <laughs> uh, I feel like I've just repeated myself. Um, and so even despite the low efficacy, one study suggested that it would prevent over 20,000 deaths each year in sub-Saharan Sub-Saharan Africa, if it can be widely deployed. And so, of course, that is another problem. Um, the can it be widely deployed? Because, um, we have had trouble with, um, vaccine distribution, um, in certain places. But hopefully, um, you know, malaria is a big problem. And I think that hopefully people will be happy to have, uh, something that can help combat it. Um, I think that polio is actually, the polio vaccine, uh, actually did pretty good in Africa. Um, I know they're having trouble in, um, I actually think it was in Afghanistan, um, or Pakistan, um, which is, you know, if it's in Afghanistan, that's, anyways, we're not going to talk about that tonight. Whew. Um, and so if we can get this deployed, that is just going to be such a huge thing because all of those children who die, represent lost opportunities. They represent people who didn't grow up to be able to take care of their families, potentially, who didn't grow up to be brilliant and, um, you know, find out something new. And that's one of the big things about all of these vaccines, um, especially since most of them are involved in preventing childhood uh, diseases, that we're trying to give 
children a chance to grow up. And I think that's incredibly amazing. And so, and actually there is other uh, potential good news, which is that there actually are other vaccines in the pipeline, including one by Moderna that is leveraging the same mRNA technology that has been so successful in their COVID-19 vaccine. And so, yeah, very exciting. Um, it's quite amazing to think that we might finally be able to successfully tame one of humanity's oldest killers. Um, cause it really is with TB. Those two have been with us for a really, really long time. Okay. So I do want to talk about COVID for just a few minutes. Um, because I think it's important to talk about this because if you hear somebody arguing about this, it's good to know the background so that you can then make informed, um, conversation, hopefully about well, yes, but, um, and so there was a recent paper that suggests, uh, that natural immunity from infection, uh, can have some better benefits than, uh, vaccination, um, immunity. And so we know that vaccination produces greater amounts of circulating antibodies after initial introduction to the system than does natural infection. However, not all of those memory B cells work in the same way. And so memory B cells that are activated by vaccination alone um, evolve over a few weeks and then they basically uh, stop evolving and become fixed. While those that emerge from natural infection evolve over several months up to a year producing highly potent antibodies that are better able to fight off variants. So you'll notice that people have said that um, vaccination has a slightly lower um, ability to prevent getting the Delta variant, for instance. And so we've all known that. And that's why they're potentially bringing out um, booster shots or they have brought out booster shots. Um, and so, yeah, but... The drawbacks of natural infection are easy to remember. While a natural infection may induce maturation of antibodies with broader activity than a vaccine does, a natural infection can also kill you, <laughs> says Michael C. Nussenzweig, uh, the Zanville A. Cohen and Ralph M. Steinman professor and head of Rockefeller's Laboratory of Molecular Immunology. A vaccine won't do that, and in fact protects against the risk of serious illness and death from infection. So yes, a vaccine will not kill you. Um, and so that is a huge <laughs> uh, benefit in the cost-benefit ratio of these two different kinds of achieving uh, immunity. And so uh, recent studies have suggested that within five months of either receiving a vaccination or recovering from COVID, some patients no longer retained circulating antibodies, but they still do have memory B cells, which can activate to prevent severe disease. Um, Nissenzweig and his colleagues found that memory B cells rapidly evolved between the first and second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. But after two months, progress stalled, with the antibodies not getting any stronger. On the other hand, those from patients with natural immunity had memory B cells that evolved for up to a year and were more broadly neutralizing. 
Now, the researchers posit several reasons why natural infection might produce more evolved antibodies. The body may react differently to infection via the respiratory tract, or the intact virus uh, may be better able to challenge the system than the lone spike protein used in vaccines. Or it may simply be that the virus persists for longer in people who have been infected, allowing for more time for immune responses to develop. But again, there is nuance. The vaccine produces plenty of memory B cells that help to prevent severe symptoms upon infection. And so it impacts thinking on booster shots, actually. So boosters will produce circulating antibodies that are strongly protective against the initial virus, but somewhat less so against variants. When to administer the booster depends on the object of boosting, he said. If the goal is to prevent infection, then boosting will need to be done after 6 to 18 months, depending on the immune status of the individual. If the goal is to prevent serious disease, boosting may not be necessary for years. And that's a big thing. And so there is a real difference between a booster to prevent you from getting it at all and a booster that would prevent you from getting serious disease. Um, you know, and it's studies like this that still say to me that we should be cautious with boosters and really trying to turn to getting people the first and second shots of these, um, you know, vaccines. And unfortunately, uh, because we live in a society where uh, medicine is capitalized uh, in the sense that it is uh, money-driven, there is a lot of incentive for companies like Moderna and Pfizer um, to push for boosters in countries that can pay for the privilege of getting them, as opposed to poor countries where they basically have to uh, donate those doses. And so, yeah, um, another reason why we need to have socialized medicine, um, single-payer health care. Uh, there's a lot of things that will not be solved in this country, as far as I'm concerned, until we have single-payer health care. Um, but again, just my opinion. <laughs> um so yeah, and it's actually really interesting too, because I actually read another study um, and they did um, some mathematical modeling, which is why I'm a little bit less, um, you know, keen on it because there's only so much you can do with mathematical modeling because they, what they did was they took other coronaviruses, um, including the one that causes the common cold. And they did a bunch of modeling and um, regression testing. And they basically felt that people who uh, got naturally infected could be reinfected as soon as, say, three months after having been initially infected. Um, and that kind of that kind of relies on variants uh, developing. So basically, they said, that there wouldn't be this this good immunity against variants. And yet when we look at these kind of studies, looking at um, actual uh, B cells, the memory B cells, we do see that there does seem to be better immunity with um, natural infection. So because this is such new research, because, um, you know, COVID is so new and we just have not been... Um, you know, dealing with it for that long, there's still a lot of uncertainty. 
And so I think that all of the indications are, though, no matter which of these turns out to be correct or partially correct um, or even a little bit correct, all of the signs point to the fact that getting the vaccination is better than putting yourself out there to get the disease. Um, and so all of those people who uh, signed on to the, um, oh, I forget what it was called, and it was from somewhere around here. It was like the Adams, it was like Adams or um, Great Barrington. I think it was Great Barrington. Uh, the Great Barrington Accord, I think it was called. Um, I will look it up during the break. And uh, they signed this document basically saying that they thought that we should just go for natural immunity and just allow people to get naturally infected. And um, I would once again, obviously say those people are not good people to suggest such a thing. Um, especially when we didn't have good science yet. And, um, I know that we hadn't yet developed a vaccine when they put it out there. Um, but yeah, just the idea that we should expose people to a potentially deadly disease, um, rather than try and wait for a vaccine to be, um, developed to, you know, try and limit people's exposure to, um, the disease. Um, you know, I understand the underlying economic issues, which of course, again, um, all problems lead back to capitalism. <laughs> and I hate to say that. I hate, um, you know, always bringing in my like anti-capitalist, uh, notions into, uh, the show because I feel like, you know, it's not meant to be a political show necessarily, but, you know, everything is politics. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, um, I definitely think that, you know, it's, it's been really frustrating and, um, yeah, but again, vaccines work, vaccines work. That's just, that's just the long and the short of it. Vaccines work. Um, whether or not you should get a booster, as far as I'm concerned at this point, um, should be, you know, follow the CDC guidelines. Cause again, those booster shots are being made available to people in the U.S. They're just not going to get to people elsewhere. Um, so for instance, my mom asked me to help her set up an appointment for my dad last night to get a booster shot. And I tried, I actually failed because, um, my mom doesn't know how to use technology at all. Um, and so she needed to send me a picture and she didn't know how to. So, um, luckily my sister was able to help her because they use the same kind of phone. So my sister was able to walk her through the process, but like, you know, I didn't have any problem with that because my dad is over 65 He's about to have surgery um, for something else. Um, obviously, n people don't generally have surgery for COVID. Um, and so, like, I felt perfectly comfortable, you know, not giving a speech about how boosters are bad. Like, that's that's a situation where, like, he has multiple reasons why one would consider getting a booster shot. And so, yeah, I think that it's definitely people should uh, do what they feel is best for them um, when it comes to booster shots. And, you know, talk to your physician if you really um, want to have an informed opinion. Um, 
my, my opinions are about the philosophical ideas rather than any kind of like whether you personally should do it. Um, you know, <laughs> please do not take it as me saying that you should not get a booster shot. I absolutely think you should if you want and need one. Um, especially if you need one. Um, I would say if you're healthy, please do not go and get one. Um, because that's not, um, you know, the CDC has not recommended it for you yet. And so, yeah. Okay. We are going to take a break. I will double check on, uh, my work there thinking about, um, I really think it's the great Barrington, but, uh, we'll just double check while we do some PSAs and some show promos. And when we come back, we will once again, not be talking about COVID. I'm so sorry. I keep talking for too long about COVID. Um, cause it's just a constant presence in our lives these days. Okay. Um, we are going to take a break. Like I said, hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. 
For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org slash Massachusetts. And thank you. It's easy to take your world for granted. Most days go by without a whole lot of surprises. But what if a disaster strikes without warning? What if life as you know it has completely turned on its head? What if everything familiar becomes anything but? Would you be prepared? Before a disaster turns your family's world upside down, it's up to you to be ready. Get a kit. Make a plan. Be informed. Today. Learn how at www.ready.gov. Ready.gov. This message brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And so, yes, it is the Great Barrington Declaration, and they're still at it. Uh, they are still trying to say that, um, you know, they don't believe in, uh, apparently they don't believe in vaccinating children or even having children mask. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I just don't, <laughs> ah, I just do not get these people at all. Um, so yeah, definitely not, not a fan, <laughs> but again, we are no longer talking about that subject tonight. We are moving on. And so I didn't get to this last week, um, but I definitely wanted to talk about it, which is that a new paper in the journal science suggests that humans were walking around North America much longer ago than was previously believed. And so it suggests that humans were living in the area of what is now White Sands National Park in New Mexico some 23,000 years ago, 10,000 years before previous estimates. Now, the dating is based on radiocarbon dating of the remains of grass seeds found in layers of sediment above and below the tracks. The tracks were laid down on the edge of the now dry Lake Otero, during the height of the last ice age, when the northern half of the continents was buried in miles of ice. Bournemouth University archaeologist Matthew Bennett and his team found a total of 61 human footprints to the east of an area now called Alkali Flat, once the bed and shoreline of an ancient lake. That lake deposited distinct layers of clay, silt, and sand. The researchers looked at seven of those layers— that held tracks from both human and extinct megafauna. Grass seeds in the layer directly below the lowest prints dated to around 23,000 years ago, with the most recent dating to around 21,000 years ago, suggesting that humans inhabited the area for some 2,000 years. These data provide definitive evidence of human occupation of North America south of the Laurentide Ice Sheet during the last glacial maximum, states the paper. The footprints come based on measurements mostly from teens and young adults, or young children, I should say. One hypothesis for this is the division of labor, in which adults are involved in skilled tasks, whereas fetching and carrying are delegated to teenagers. Children accompany the teenagers, wrote Bennett and his colleagues. Now, the prints look a little odd compared to modern footprints. They tend to be flatter, 
most likely because the people who made them spent a fair amount, if not all of their time, barefoot. The toes are also stretched out, which suggests that they were walking along a muddy lakeshore or in other slippery sediments. The area is actually known for having preserved other trackways, with several of them from later in time being preserved, including one that involved a teen or short woman carrying an infant crossing paths with mammoths or mastodons and giant ground sloths between 10,000 and 15,000 years ago. One track actually shows a giant ground sloth that walked toward a person, seems to have noticed them, and then changed directions to walk away. We are making the sloths think twice about getting anywhere near a human being, and that is exactly what a prey animal does to avoid a predator, Reynolds says. So it tells us a lot about humans' place in the ecosystem at the point when we arrived in the Americas. The prints at White Sands are so unique in terms of getting us behavior and not just morphology. It means that we can actually sense these sorts of attitudes of one species to the other. And so again, the researchers suggest the teens represented in the new trackway may have been fetching water or gathering food. And so interestingly, if this dating is correct, it suggests, uh, again, that humans were in the Americas before the last ice age, and therefore they might once again be implicated in the extinction of megafauna, which we still fairly poorly understand why why there are no more giant ground sloths, um, which always makes me sad because they just seem like such amazing animals. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, the only remnant we have of them now is avocados. Um, <laughs> fun fact. But, um, yeah, so maybe we did uh, kill off more megafauna because we actually were in the Americas earlier than people thought they were. Um, now, of course, this is a huge change to the established idea that humans arrived in the Americas around 16,000 years ago. And so we'll, of course, need to be scrutinized to be sure that the dating is correct. Um, and so, for instance, aquatic plants like the species of grass used for the radiocarbon dating can sometimes look older than they are. And so this is um, the um, sort of water effect or ocean effect. Um, and so this is always a fun thing with creationists. So creationists often use the fact that marine fossils can appear much older than they are as a supposed gotcha uh, for evolution and radiocarbon dating and all of these things. But it just is because the carbon in water is often older than uh, it would be if the, um, you know, fossils that were created were on land. But Bennett and his colleagues actually compared radiocarbon dates for both terrestrial and aquatic plants in the area, and they gave the same age ranges. And it might not be that big of a leap. Other new evidence has suggested pushing back the arrival of modern humans into the Americas. And so a paper from last year described stone tools discovered in a cave in Mexico, which were found in a 30,000-year-old layer of sediment. Now, both of these are much more likely than a claim from California of a 130,000-year-old mammoth butchering site. Now, known evidence puts modern humans still firmly in Africa and the Middle East at this point. We haven't, we hadn't even made it to Europe. <laughs> um, and so 
that is definitely not um, as strongly supported uh, by any means whatsoever. But again, one has to say that our fossil record is very sparse. And so sometimes you find these really cool things that push back time. Um, but I still think the 130,000 year old, um, it's basically just from some rocks that they think look like humans made them, but sometimes rocks just look like humans made them. Um, <laughs> and so I, I'd, we'd need a lot more than just some, uh, possible stone tools to push back, uh, people being in the Americas to 130,000 years ago. Um, I think that, uh, 30,000, uh, you know, um, that kind of time frame, uh, is much more realistic, uh, especially 20 to 21,000 years ago. Uh, that can definitely be, uh, something I could probably entertain, but, uh, <laughs> 130,000 years ago is a little much. <laughs> okay, so let us move on now. And we're going to talk about uh, the cassowary. And so um, if you've never seen a cassowary, I highly recommend it. They are amazing. Um, and uh, if you can track it down, uh, track down a video of them um, eating apples. Um, it's pretty amazing. They just swallow them whole. It's crazy. Uh, especially since they have a very small neck. You would not think they could just swallow an apple whole, but they do. Okay. So new research suggests that humans have been collecting, hatching, and possibly raising cassowaries as far back as the Pleistocene era, some 18,000 years ago in New Guinea thousands of years before the domestication of chickens and geese. And this is not some small fowl, lead study author Christina Douglas, an archaeologist at Penn State, said in a statement. It is a huge, ornery, flightless bird that can eviscerate you. Most likely the dwarf variety that weighs 20 kilos or 44 pounds. Um, <laughs> uh, and so uh, the researchers examined the remains of ancient eggshells to conclude that this is the earliest evidence of intentional bird rearing. They used a combination of 3D imaging, computer modeling, and egg morphology to examine over 1,000 fragments of cassowary eggshells dating to between 6,000 and 18,000 years ago. We used that approach to see whether or not there was any pattern in terms of when people were harvesting cassowary eggs. Douglas told Live Science, and we found that there was a pattern and that people were harvesting eggs preferentially in the later stages of development. And so people were probably collecting the eggs for one of two reasons, either to eat them or to raise them for the bird's meat and feathers. Now, they may have consumed late stage eggs in the way that people in the Philippines do today with duck eggs. Um, so yeah, um, if you really want to know, it's called Balut. Um, and let's just put it this way. Uh, the first time I saw it was on a show about um, bizarre foods. So yeah, um, but you know, there are plenty of things that I eat that other people would probably think are terrifying and awful. So I definitely am not judging. Uh, and so they might actually have raised them though. Uh, cassowary chicks imprint on the first creature they see, so it probably made it easier for them to be raised by humans, notes University of Maine anthropologist Paul Roscoe. 
And so cassowaries and their eggs actually continue to be a valuable resource in New Guinea. Uh, historically, for instance, the tibiotarsis, or upper part of the leg, of these large birds was used to fashion bone daggers for hunting. Today, they're an important source of meat, and their feathers are used for ornamentation. Cassowary is quite a delicacy, Roscoe said. Um, so I guess, yeah, if you ever get a chance to eat, <laughs> to try some cassowary, you should. Um, I've had ostrich. Ostrich was pretty good. Uh, you may be more familiar with some other traits of these large birds, which can reach uh, nearly six feet tall and weigh 120 pounds for the non-dwarf variety. Um, and that includes the fact that they can be very dangerous. They have these really large four-inch claws, and if they feel threatened, they will use them, Douglas said. Um, and so they have actually been known on very rare occasions to kill humans. Um, but the moral in the end, uh, so to speak, of the story is that ancient hunter-gatherers were no less adept and intelligent than their agrarian cousins. People had this very sophisticated knowledge that they were passing down from one generation to the next, she said. And this kind of research reaffirms the importance of local and indigenous knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, very cool and important to remember that, you know, indigenous people were living inside their means um, for thousands of years in places. And, um, you know, you always have to remember that we're the descendants of the people who figured out how to live off the land. Um, and so it is definitely something that I think that, um, you know, I'm constantly trying to remind people that uh, our ancient ancestors were just as intelligent, potentially, as we were, in the sense that uh, we are, in the sense that they have all the potentiality. Um, the, the brain has all the potentiality today that it had back then. So our brain has not evolved too much since then. But what has evolved is our accumulated knowledge. So we know everything they knew, plus a whole bunch of stuff that they couldn't have ever figured out because they literally just didn't have time. Um, and so um, I know I say this a lot. So if you're a regular listener, I apologize. Uh, but it's really important to remember that ancient people, if you took a baby from, um, you know, an, an ancient indigenous person and brought it into the modern world using, you know, some sort of time machine. Um, I don't believe that time machines are possible currently. Um, and, uh, but if you brought that baby and raised it as a modern human, you would never be able to tell that they weren't born in the 21st century. You'd never be able to tell as far as, um, everything that we have seen from people who are, um, you know, modern humans who actually um, are able to do these sorts of things at this point in time. So by the Pleistocene, um, yeah, I definitely think that if you were able to take someone from the Pleistocene and raise them in the 21st century, you would never know the difference. Um, so yeah, so very important to remember that people are the same uh, today as they were back then. And so um we just have more things to distract us too. Um, someone was again, I was watching a video. Um, I don't know why I do this to myself. Uh, but I was watching one of those videos where people are like, oh, you know, ancient people didn't, you know, had all these amazing things that they did and nobody knows how they did them. And it's like, we just don't 
sit around thinking about how they did them. And most of the time we do actually know how they did them, but like, you know, the pyramids, people are always like, oh, you can't lift rocks that, that large. And it's like, yeah, just, we don't, we just don't anymore. So like, yeah, the biggest machines can't do it, but the biggest machines weren't built to do it because nobody makes buildings like that anymore. And so we absolutely almost, you know, I can't imagine we couldn't build a machine that could move those rocks. We just don't because <laughs> there's no need for one of them. Um, so it makes me frustrated. Anyways, let's, let's, let's talk about Percy. The Perseverance Rover has done something cool. So let's talk about that instead of me rambling. Um, so while researchers were able to tell uh, that Yezero Crater once held liquid water, uh, they weren't quite expecting the evidence of water deposition that Percy has found in recent months. And so examining pictures taken by the rover, Nicholas Mangold, a planetary scientist at the University of Nantes in France, um, in France, <laughs> and colleagues found that there were faces of the alluvial fan that were invisible from orbit and which are instrumental in understanding the hydrological evolution of Yezero Crater. And so they actually found evidence of deltas that advanced into the lake. And they also found that the uppermost fan strata was composed of boulder conglomerates, which suggests that rather than a regular flow of water, later deposition was influenced by episodic high-energy floods. So the researchers used images taken by the Mastcam Z camera and the remote microimager of the SuperCam instrument to take long-distance images of the western fan deposit. All of the pictures that the team analyzed actually came from when Percy was stationary in those first few months on the planet, and so while it was still having its system checks performed, it was also taking pictures. Without driving anywhere, the rover was able to solve one of the big unknowns, which is that this crater was once a lake notes Benjamin Weiss, professor of planetary science in MIT's Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, and a member of the analysis team. Until we actually landed there and confirmed it was a lake, it was always a question. Now, they were especially interested in a photo mosaic of what is what they've been calling Kodiak Butte. This outcropping shows several distinct layers of soil and rock deposition, with mudstone and sandstone in the lower layers, and more rocky conglomerates in the higher levels. In those higher levels, the researchers found over 300 boulders and cobbles, with the largest measuring nearly five feet across. If you look at these images, you're basically staring at this epic desert landscape. It's the most forlorn place you could ever visit, says Weiss. There's not a drop of water anywhere, and yet here we have evidence of a very different past. Something very profound happened in the planet's history. Now, the team believes that the Kodiak Butte was once part of the Western Fan, but that a portion of the sediment has eroded away. The overall picture is of a lake that was initially fed by a river, until at some point a changing climate led to periodic flooding that was able to carry large boulders downstream. You need energetic flood conditions to carry rocks that big and heavy, Vice said. It's a special thing that may be indicative of a fundamental change in the, lyco, in the local hydrology or perhaps the regional climate on Mars. 
And so the reason for the change from a quiet lake to one characterized with flash flooding is currently unknown, but the researchers hope that sampling and examination of rocks in the area may offer some clues. The most surprising thing that's come out of these images is the potential opportunity to catch the time when this crater transitioned from an Earth-like habitable environment to this desolate landscape wasteland that we see now, he said. These boulder beds may be records of this transition, and we haven't seen this in other places on Mars, which is very cool. And uh, as for the primary mission of Percy, which is to look for signs of ancient life, some of the lower layers contain what is called bottom set. Uh, and so that's sort of the sediment that settles at the bottom of a lake and is usually composed of um, fine-grained clays. And so those eventually lithified, um, became uh, stone, and it makes them a good candidate for looking for fossil remains of ancient Martian organisms. And so if I've mentioned before, what they're looking for is something akin to earthbound uh, stromatolites. In my view, the identification of biosignatures, which if present are expected to be small-scale and microbial in origin, will depend upon high-resolution observations made with the Watson, Sherlock, and Pixel instruments once the rover approaches the delta, said Kyron Hickman-Lewis, a paleontologist at the Natural History Museum in London and a co-author of the new study. Certain microbial structures, for example, microbial mat fabrics, and biological organic materials, biomolecules, should be identifiable if present and preserved. And so, yeah, that is very, very exciting. Um, I think that there is going to be a lot of exciting work being done on Mars. And so, yeah, um, of course, we're doing a lot of stuff on the moon as well. And, um, so I don't have time this week, but we'll start out next week with a story about, um, some cool rocks that have been brought back from the moon recently and, uh, the story that they tell. So, um, yeah, it's pretty exciting to be able to get updates from Percy, especially. Um, I really am excited about all of the really good um, work that is being done on Mars. And it's just, it is very exciting to think that we have all of these rovers and all of these um, orbiters doing just this amazing science. And again, how uh, far we've come from uh, our hunter-gatherer and early um, agricultural ancestors. And so I think that it's really really kind of cool. And, um, I hope that, uh, if you have the day off on Monday, uh, that you enjoy it. Um, if you're listening to this in real time, uh, if you are listening to this in the future, then I am sorry for, uh, <laughs> for, um, implying that you might be able to enjoy your Monday off if you have to go to work on Monday. Um, I have to go to work on Monday. So, you know, things happen. Anyways, that is all the time I have for tonight. And so thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. 
Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.